The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I didn't need Gravano to convict John Gotti, but he helped me convict almost 50 other guys. And if those 50 other guys had emptied out their closet and told us of all their murders, I guarantee you it would have been in, in substantially in excess of the 19 Gravano committed. And more importantly, not all 50 of those guys were murderers. A lot were though. And you know, one thing you need to understand where you have this debate about striking deals with, with accomplice witnesses like Gravano is the people we put in prison for life based on his testimony would otherwise have remained on the street and they weren't going to stop killing people. I'm Catherine Pompilio, Associate Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 29th, 2022. John Gotti was boss of the Gambino crime family in New York and one of America's most notorious mobsters. Nicknamed the Teflon Don for his ability to beat criminal charges, Gotti became a celebrity mob boss and was no stranger to law enforcement. Gotti's reign was put to an end by convictions obtained by John Gleason, a former federal prosecutor. Gotti's conviction and others that followed eventually led to the takedown of La Cosa Nostra in New York City. Decades later, now Judge Gleason memorialized how he obtained Gotti's conviction in his new book entitled The Gotti Wars, Taking Down America's Most Notorious Mobster. Former Lawfare Associate Editor Bryce Clem sat down with Judge Gleason. They discussed how Gleason became involved in one of the biggest mafia cases in the history of United States jurisprudence, conflicts between the prosecution and the FBI, and how underboss Sammy the Bull Gravano became an informant to take down the rest of the mob. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 29th. John Gleason on The Gotti Wars. So Judge Gleason, why did you write this book now? You mean, why did it take so long to write the book? Look, I knew at the time that I had these experiences and I was lucky to have them, and they were part of a special time in New York, in New York law enforcement, in New York generally. So I, I was lucky enough to have them, smart enough to realize this stuff needed to be memorialized. But, you know, life gets in the way. I was, you know, being a judge and raising kids and teaching law school. And, and it's not easy to write for a, a wide lay audience. I'm a lawyer. 
So, you know, it wasn't something that came naturally to me. So it, it took longer than it should. I'm very pleased and proud to have gotten it across the finish line, however long it took, and it took long. So let's jump in. When people talk about the mafia, specifically in New York in the 1970s and 80s, what are people referring to and what sort of activities did the five families engage in? How did they make their money and accumulate power? Well, some people are referring to Don Corleone and Tony Soprano, but they're all wrong. That That's our kind of cultural impression of the mob. When people who know what they're talking about talk about La Cosa Nostra in New York in the 80s and, and 90s, 70s as well, there's a popular misconception that they made their money in gambling and loan sharking and prostitution and drugs. And although some of that's true, although not prostitution, the mob has, to my knowledge, never been involved in that. The, the real money, and th this is insufficiently known among those who actually care about the mob, the, the real money was in labor racketeering. You know, corrupt relationships with the Teamsters, which allows you to siphon money out of the construction industry, with the ILA, the International Longshoremen Association, so you can skim some money out of the, off the docks, the work at the docks, the garment center, garbage carting. The real bread and butter of the mob back then was the tentacles it had uh, as a result of corrupt relationships with union officials and the ability to basically skim off the top of all the major industries in New York, a meaningful premium. So how did John Gotti fit into that picture? What was his sort of role and how did he accumulate power? He didn't fit in well. And pretty much everybody will tell you that, especially the other people who were in the mob at the time. He decided to be a celebrity boss. And he was the first. He'll probably be the last because not for nothing, as we say in Brooklyn, I mean, they're they're criminals. They call it organized crime for a reason. And all the mob bosses before him and his contemporaries laid low. You know, the extreme example is Chin Giganti, who walked around Greenwich Village in a bathrobe, feigning mental illness for a couple of decades, just in the event he would get prosecuted. John Gotti decided he was going to be a celebrity. And he was a celebrity, got himself on the cover of Time magazine. But when you think about it, you know, all that did was amount to be a sharp stick in the eye of the FBI. And by publicly being a mob boss that the media adored, John Gotti mobilized. You know, those FBI agents say what else you want about them. They know what they're doing. And he mobilized them against all of the families, not just John Gotti and the Gambino crime family, but against all of the families. That, combined with Sammy Gravano, the underboss flipping, really was the beginning of the end of the mob as we once knew it, was John Gotti's decision to be the kind of boss he was and the consequences that had for all of La Cosa Nostra. So you write in the book about leaving a law firm to go to the Eastern District of New York. Why did you make that decision? Why did you decide to do that? Because, you know, bullets behind the ear are more interesting than antitrust cases and securities cases. It's not like I didn't like 
the work I did at Cravath. That was the firm I was at. I liked it, but I was drawn to the, for all the reasons, you know, people like true crime. I was drawn to the criminal work. It was more interesting and I wanted to do it. I didn't necessarily want to be a prosecutor. You know, I saw The Godfather so many times I practically had it memorized. I kind of wanted to be Tom Hagen, the consigliere of the, of the Corleone family. But young lawyers have a tough time being defense lawyers in significant cases. It's easy for a young lawyer to be a prosecutor in a significant case. So I went the prosecution route because I thought it was just more interesting than the big firm stuff. And you really quickly ran into sort of a godfather scenario when you were first tasked the first time with prosecuting John Gotti. What was your initial reaction to that and your family's reaction? You're right. I, you know, I just stumbled into it. I got assigned because I was thought to be a good brief writer. I got assigned to help Diane Jackalone, the lead prosecutor in the first case, prosecute that case. So I went from, you know, the the staid hallways of big law and securities cases and antitrust cases and contract disputes to um, prosecuting John Gotti, who at the time, like burst on the scene as the boss of the family. Like the first case had nothing to do with the Castellano homicide. It was other crimes. And while he was awaiting trial in that first case that I prosecuted, they killed Paul Castellano outside Sparks. He burst on the scene in a most violent way possible as boss of the Gambino family. And all of a sudden we had the biggest case in the country on our hands. And how did a lot of that press affect your work on the prosecution side? You know, we kept our heads down. America belongs basically on a therapist's couch when it comes to the mob, outlaws generally, the mob specifically. The media loved John Gotti until the day he was convicted, at which time the media completely pivoted and they loved us. But until then, they were fascinated by him, saw in him what the media wanted to see. It's kind of stoical, dapper, Don type, which didn't bear much resemblance to the reality of John Gotti, but he he knew America was hungry for its own vision of a mob boss and a mob family. And he capitalized on that. It was what it's what enabled him to become the celebrity boss. So, you know, we kept our heads down, did our jobs, lost the first case, but then didn't go away. And a lot of people, I think, generally think of law enforcement as sort of one seamless entity. And you dispel that notion in the book. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the agent prosecutor relationship and maybe some of the equities that you have to balance as a prosecutor and how those can run up against the interests of an FBI agent. Sure. The most salient answer to that question is uh, the phenomenon that happened in the first case, which is as the case was about to be indicted, the FBI informed the United States attorney at the time that two of the people in the indictment were valuable FBI informants. And one of them, Willie Boy Johnson, was what they call a TE, top echelon informant, who had been helping the FBI fight La Cosa Nostra for 20 years. The U.S. attorney said, sorry, but your valuable informant committed a murder. 
and you know we're not going to just walk away from the case so they indicted the case the u.s attorney indicted the case and the fbi walked away from the case you know it it had legitimate interests that it thought were intruded upon you know it promised confidentiality to willie boy and the other informant billy batista and uh felt that that promise had been breached but you know there's certain crimes you just can't effectively investigate and prosecute without the fbi's help and organized crime is chief among them so there was a schism there was scorched earth between the u.s attorney's office that i had just joined and the fbi and uh that first case was prosecuted um, without the help of the fbi it made it enormously more difficult and uh, it was only over a matter of years that I was able to build a bridge back to the FBI and work with them and work with them effectively to plant the bug in the Ravenite Social Club and to bring the second successful case. And you also talk about in the book the difference between evidence versus information. And you talk about this more in the context of the second trial. So I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. You know, prosecutors are ever alert to what's admissible evidence on the one hand and what's really interesting and maybe even pretty reliable information on the other. You know, if you've got a hundred informants that all tell you and they don't know each other, that John Gotti murdered Paul Castellano, you've got really good information, but unless one of them's gonna get up on the witness stand and say, John Gotti told me that, or I was there and I saw it, you don't have any evidence. So, you know, I developed a really productive, close relationship with the FBI agents I worked with. The, you know, they're great investigators. They're great at gathering information. But prosecutors act as kind of a filter in a sense because, you know, unless you've got non-hearsay, admissible kind of firsthand evidence, you got nothing. You can't even bring a case, let alone win it. So part of the, you know, the successful relationship between an FBI agent and a prosecutor is the prosecutor defers to their investigative instinct and the agent defers to the prosecutor's lawyer instinct about what's going to work and what's not and what charges to bring and how to support them. And when it works well, it's a great relationship. Sometimes it doesn't work well. It did, it did for me in my cases. So why did law enforcement succeed in the 1980s and, and 90s in prosecuting and going after the mob? And, you know, they had been trying to get them for a long time, really, since the 60s. What, what was sort of unique about that era and how did sort of things convalesce into the massive wave? It's a great question. You know, the backdrop to it was a complete change in our federal sentencing regime there was a Sentencing Reform Act in the 80s that for a lot of different reasons during that period, crime rate was really high. The murder rate in New York was seven times what it is today. And the, the long and short of it is sentences became much, much more severe than they had been. And the system was built to allow as an escape hatch, safety valve, a way out of those severe sentences if a prosecutor wrote a letter that said you'd helped prosecute people. You flipped, cooperated. So the incentive generally to cooperate was ratcheted up 
higher. The other reasons were there's, there's no overstating the importance of John Gotti both becoming a celebrity boss, which brought all the resources of the FBI down on all of the Cosa Nostra, and then he kind of trash talked his underboss behind his underboss's back, Sammy Gravano. The FBI had planted a bug in the room. So when we arrested them, Gravano at the detention hearing, the day of, after the arrest, heard snippets of a conversation that gave him good reason to believe that John Gotti was looking to kill him. So fast forward 11 months after that arrest, 10 weeks before trial, for, for that reason and a few others, Gravano reaches out to me, we strike a deal, he flips, and Gravano flipping was, the one-two punch to the mob was John Gotti being a celebrity boss, and then Gravano flipping. It changed the mob as we knew it. I didn't need Gravano to convict John Gotti. I already had John Gotti on the tapes. Gravano helped us bring down the rest of the mob, pure and simple. The mob, as we knew it then, is not literally gone, but it's a shell of its former self. So you had some conversations with John Gotti, and you heard him on probably hundreds of hours of tape, if not more. What did you What did you make of him as a person? Oh, geez. I mean, he was uh, he was not a sophisticated gangster. He didn't know from labor racketeering. He had grown up as a truck hijacker out in Queens. He lived right near JFK Airport. His club was out there, gambling, loan sharking, drug dealing. And then he took over a family that, as I mentioned earlier, was made its money in labor racketeering. And John Gotti was not sophisticated in that way. Since he had betrayed his own boss and killed his own boss, he had no reason to necessarily trust the people who were under him, and he didn't. You know, he thought other people were cheating him and was constantly worried about that. He was not a great boss, in part because he lacked the sophistication that labor racketeering required, in part because he didn't trust anybody. And uh, he was, uh, look, he was just a murderous, treacherous, backstabbing guy. You know, the, the real disconnect in our culture between the popular conception of the mob and the real mob is this notion, you know, inculcated in us by the Godfather and says that there's such a thing as, you know, men of honor. That's ridiculous. They're criminals. They don't trust each other. They commit crimes. They commit murders. It's a truly demented organization. Yeah, I was going to ask you a little bit more about that, uh, sort of the popular perception of the mafia. I mean, Orson Welles once said that the Godfather glorified a bunch of bums. I imagine you share that sentiment. And, you know, what do you think when you, if you watch any of these sort of mob movies, like, I don't know, The Irishman in recent years, what, I'm just curious, what do you think? Well, look, you know, I'm a product of the same culture. So I loved The Godfather. I was in the middle of, you know, I, I didn't really watch The Sopranos. But, you know, I liked the art. It's interesting. I mean, it'd be nice. I saw The Irish. I saw the Irishman like last like three days. That's a really long movie. And it's the same guys, right? It'd be nice if they came up with a different set of actors besides Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. And, you know, it's the same guys playing the same people. But 
I'm fascinated like everyone else. And it doesn't sound like it bothers me because I think our fascination with the mob, which doesn't really understand the mob, is what accounts for the appetite for a book like the one I wrote. I mean, John Gotti died 20 years ago. The trial was 30 years ago, but we still have this thing, you know, we still have this thing for the mob that I, you know, I think can be traced back to Jesse James and Bonnie and Clyde and outlaws generally. You know, we like to think they're cool and, and in, in some way kind of, you know, we like to glorify them. So that, that's all right. I'm okay with that. I'm a product of the same culture. I watch the movies. Goodfellas is actually pretty accurate. The rest of them are not. And Sammy the Bull now, he he has his own podcast, I think. I mean, I assume, I mean, I don't know if you've listened to it, but if you if you have or if you've seen any interviews with him, you know, it really, when you read your book, it, it really just seems like he kind of got lucky and like decided to betray John Gotti before he got killed. You know, what do you... What do you sort of notice if you watch any interviews with him? Yeah, you know, I've seen I've seen some snippets of Sammy's interviews, you know, where he's sitting in front of the camera with that hat. That's that's the Sammy I knew. You know, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with him preparing his testimony. My reactions first are, what a great country we live in. <laughs> Had a guy like Sammy Gravano now has a podcast. Go figure. You know, the, the one thing I'll say is that the stuff I've heard, it's not a lot of it. I've probably heard a total here and there of maybe an hour of it. That's what stuff he was telling me 30 years ago. I mean, he Gravano was the real deal as a gangster, much more so than John Gotti. And if John Gotti had not trash talked Sammy on the tapes up in that apartment above the Ravenite Social Club, I believe in my bones Gravano would not have flipped. So in a way, you know, Gotti set that in motion. But there you go. You know, the guy pleads guilty to 19 murders, helps us dismantle all of La Cosa Nostra, gets five years for those 19 murders, but then turns around and gets 20 years on an ecstasy case. So, you know, sometimes the truth is is more interesting and weirder than fiction. And Gravano's story might be an example of that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got 
a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I want to get back to some of the book and, and talk about the people who are representing 
John Gotti and, and the other mobsters. And you write about, you know, you had to prosecute Mike Corio, who was, I think he represented John Gotti at some point. You know, you write about your mixed emotions there. I'm curious, as a lawyer, how did you look at these people who were representing the mobsters? Yeah, well, um, Mike was a special case because Mike Coiro had been around the Gotti crew out in Queens as early as the 70s. He kind of grew up as a lawyer with them, representing them in the truck hijacking cases. And I, I liked Mike. He was a very affable guy. I felt I was doing my job, but I felt a little bad prosecuting Mike because I had, I had been, you know, an adversary of his in other cases for five years. This other category, which has many more lawyers in it, are the people who came along later. And the truth is, John Gotti had a way. He just brought out the the worst in everybody. He was a so Bruce Cutler was my main antagonist, I guess, in the in the cases I prosecuted John Gotti in. And, uh, you know, Bruce represented Mike Coiro when I prosecuted Mike Coiro. I got along great with Bruce. I liked him. He's not a bad guy. But everybody who got into John Gotti's inner orbit was transformed by him into something they were not in every other context of their careers. He drew people in. He was a celebrity boss. They liked that. They liked the attraction of it. And they got in. They ended up on tape. Bruce Cutler and Jerry Chargell got disqualified because they got too close to their client, became part of the problem instead of just part of the solution. So to sum it up a little bit, I kind of felt bad for the lawyers. They were good lawyers who were fine to be up against when they represented anybody other than John Gotti. Once they were in his orbit, he was all intimidation, all obnoxious. It was it was bad. Because a lot of what you write makes it seem like if you were even going to represent him, you know, he would make you do something that you didn't want to do. And, you know, what choice would, would a lawyer have in that situation? Yeah, good for you that you picked that up. You know, that, and that really afflicted Al Krieger, who represented John Gotti at trial. You know, most good lawyers can say to their client, we're not doing that. That's a bad idea. We're not going to do it. But, you know, uh, John Gotti was not the average client. So I, I would hear screaming from the marshal's pen adjacent to the courtroom. Um, John Gotti screaming at his lawyers who then the judge would come out and they would make some some application, some request of the judge. That was no way it would be granted, but they were forced to do that by their client. They were all afraid of him. You know, we had that one vignette where John Gotti wanted to told up in that, rec in that secretly recorded conversation, said that he was gonna ask Paul Castellano's lawyer to represent Gotti. John Gotti killed Paul Castellano. His lawyer was Castellano's close friend, Jimmy LaRosa. And John Gotti said, I'm going to send him a feeler. I want him to represent me. If he says no, I'm going to kill him. Dead serious. So the, the lawyers lived in fear of him and did things they otherwise wouldn't do. And it just took the wind out of their sails. It's not the way good defense lawyers are used to defending cases.
And from your view, prosecuting them, you write about a number of personal attacks that they made on you and other prosecutors. I'm curious how prosecuting them is different than, say, other cases that you were handling at the time. It was as different as night is different from day, right? So the same year that I prosecuted and convicted John Gotti, I prosecuted and convicted Vic Arena, boss of the Colombo family, just six months after the Gotti case. And Vic would come in in the morning and we'd shake hands. He'd say, good morning. I'd shake hands with his lawyer. The jury would come in. We'd, lit we'd litigate it hard. And then the jury would go home, shake Vic's hand, see you tomorrow, uh, have a good night. Same with the lawyer. You know, uh, lawyering on the criminal side is much more civil as a general rule than lawyering in civil litigation, because in civil litigation, there's no, usually there's no judge around and it's a larger community. So, you know, it was litigating cases against John Gotti. This I learned, right? My first case was the first Gotti case. I thought everything is like this, all intimidation, all, all bluster, all obnoxious all the time, only to learn as I grew up as a prosecutor that that was the glaring exception, not the rule, but it was the rule when John Gotti was on trial. You write also a lot about the Eastern District and sort of, I don't want to call it a rivalry, some turf wars with the Southern District of New York. I was wondering if you could uh, if you could just talk a little bit about that, because I, I found it fascinating and maybe that meeting you had with, uh, with Robert Mueller. Yeah, sure. Well, look, the, it's two U.S. attorney's offices in the same city. It's the only city in the country that has two U.S. attorney's offices. And, you know, that produces competition and competition is good for everything, including in law enforcement, except when it's not. And it's not when it produces turf wars. And you allude to a turf war in the book where the Southern District, which is regarded for good reason as the flagship premier U.S. Attorney's Office in the country. It's the one in Manhattan. They call themselves not the Southern District of New York, but the Sovereign District of New York. And, you know, the Eastern District has historically been like the, the, the stepbrother across the river in Brooklyn. And the Southern District is used to getting its way. And if it got its way in, in the setting that the book writes about, they would have just taken my case, taken our case, taken all the evidence and prosecuted the uh, case themselves. Thank goodness. So we ended up in Washington litigating against another U.S. attorney's office who was going to prosecute John Gotti using our evidence. And thank goodness Bob Mueller, who was then the chief of the criminal division in the Department of Justice, presided over this litigation and awarded the case to, to us in the Eastern District. Thank goodness. There's a, uh, there's a whole generation of prosecutors and law enforcement that really cut their teeth and in some cases made their careers on these mafia prosecutions. And it seems like in order to do that, they had to be really aggressive. And if I, to anyone listening, if you get the book, you know, look at the cast of characters at the beginning and you'll recognize a lot of names that have been in the news these past few years. And I'm curious in your mind, you know, what has been sort of the effect on law enforcement of these people who cut their teeth prosecuting mob bosses as they've sort of risen in rank? That's a good question. You know, there's 
law enforcement is a competitive business. It's loaded, especially in the prosecution ranks with people who want to succeed. You know, I'll be candid about the fact that the reason I went on the bench, reason I got nominated to the bench at age 40 was I convicted John Gotti. You know, so there's a straight line between success as a prosecutor and future, you know, accomplishments in your career. So that's real. What's also real is the need, you know, for people to not, you know, sacrifice the the principles that govern law enforcement. People need to be careful. You can't let your ambition cause you not to honor the, the rules of the road, right? You got to turn over exculpatory evidence. You got to make sure that you turn square corners and you're presenting reliable evidence. You can't take shortcuts. And there's no doubt prosecutors who, you know, want to get the trophy defendant convicted, you know, can succumb to taking shortcuts. That's a real, that's a real cause for concern in our system because people get rewarded. You know, I went on the bench. Most young prosecutors in New York are rewarded through kind of lucrative partnerships in law firms. And uh, that can affect their behavior in negative ways. It's a really important point you raise and one to which judges and prosecutors themselves really need to be alert at all times. I want to ask you about sort of modern organized crime prosecutions and maybe how technological surveillance has changed those. Has that, have you seen, you know, if you follow modern organized crime prosecutions, you know, how technological surveillance has changed that relationship? Well, there's a, if you, by organized crime, you mean traditional, like La Cosa Nostra organized crime. There's a huge, like, diminution in the number of those cases over the years. But to, to answer your question directly, you know, now there's, there hardly seems to be any thought that goes unexpressed in a form that's memorialized, right? Emails, texts, you know, recordings. I don't I don't really think you can put a essentially a call a wiretap. You can intercept email communications. You can intercept electronic communications. I don't think the world of bugging and wiretapping has undergone seismic changes, but so many other communications are now available. I think that in part is other reasons, in part accounts for the the dramatic reduction in the incidence of trials. You know, before people memorialized their communications in emails and texts, it was a lot easier to uh, say the government failed to prove that conspiracy. Now it just seems every single case, I'm a defense lawyer now, it seems like every single type of case brings an avalanche of communications. So it's in that way, advancements in technology and advancements in the FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies to track communications have changed the world. I want to return to Sammy the Bull for a second. And you, as you said, you know, he admitted to killing 19 people and only served five years. When you think about that in the context of other people in this country who have been jailed for far longer for possessing, you know, a small amount of drugs and 
things like that. You know, obviously you probably didn't think about that while you were, you know, trying to get Sammy the Bull to cooperate, but you know, have you ever wrestled with that in terms of the American system of justice that this guy could kill 19 people and still just get five years? Yeah, I thought hard about it, including at the time. But here, and, and I'll right up front admit that reasonable people can disagree about the wisdom of striking a deal with someone like Gravano. But before you come down on that in any kind of you know decisive way, there needs to be a discussion of, of a f- couple of facts that are, rarely make it to the table when this debate happens. And here are the facts. I indicted Sammy Gravano for three murders. I knew he committed a couple of others. When he became my witness, he had to empty out his closet of all the skeletons. And so he told me there were 19. Okay. It's a lot of murders. I didn't need Gravano to convict John Gotti, but he helped me convict almost 50 other guys. And if those 50 other guys had emptied out their closet and told us of all their murders, I guarantee you it would have been substantially in excess of the 19 Gravano committed. And more importantly, not all 50 of those guys were murderers. A lot were though. And, you know, one thing you need to understand where you have this debate about striking deals with, with accomplice witnesses like Gravano is the people we put in prison for life based on his testimony would otherwise have remained on the street and they weren't going to stop killing people. So, you know, lives were saved. Do you get the point? You know, there's no, there's no precision with regard to the number of murders those people we convicted committed or would have committed, but you can rest assured there were a lot of both. And that needs to be on the table. Might you still come out and say, look, I'm not, we're not going to reward a guy like Gravano. Yes, I understand that. I think it's a cost benefit analysis. I have no compunctions at all. No, da- no doubt about the wisdom of striking a deal with Sammy helped us bring down all of La Cosa Nostra. But I get the debate. I understand. I want to ask about Rico for a second. And, and, you know, Rico was so perfectly tailored to taking down the mafia. I'm curious, this might be a tough question, but is there any other sort of sort of ongoing crimes that, you know, new legislation might be needed, something like Rico that, that prosecutors have been having a difficult time with? No, honest to God, we have, you know, the federal criminal law landscape is littered with all kinds of tools. Prosecutors are very well equipped to handle just about everything. You know, in the in the in the legal academy, you know, there's a debate about overcriminalization, and but there's hardly any crime you can think of that can't be prosecuted every which way by federal prosecutors because of the the intense like labyrinth of criminal laws on the books whether it's terrorism or organized crime or drug trafficking, I think it's fair to say as a system, we kind of, we got it covered on what's illegal and what's not. So my last question to you is, how did your experience as a prosecutor and in the two Gotti trials, really your whole time as a prosecutor, inform your experience as a judge and even what you do now as a defense lawyer? As it related to my experience as a judge, I went on the bench and saw that the 
severity that was being dished out at sentencing to the guys I was investigating and prosecuting, which as far as they were concerned, was completely deserved. I never thought anybody got overpunished in a case I prosecuted. I found that that severity was being dished out pretty much across the entire caseload, including these low level, you know, nonviolent addicted drug traffickers who were facing mandatory minimums. So I think it helped shape my view that we have, we've shifted, when we shifted back in the 80s and 90s to a new sentencing regime, we shifted into a regime that was over-incarcerating, excessively punitive, and needed to be changed. And that turned me into a sentencing reformer, even as I was on the bench. And I'm still doing, you know, now I'm out, six years out, I'm I, a big part of my work is criminal defense, and I'm still involved in sentencing reform efforts. You know, we have a we have a great criminal justice system. It's just, it's you know, we got five percent of the world's people, but twenty five percent of the world's prisoners. We over we the pendulum went too far. We've over incarcerated. We're too harsh in our sentencing. Change is needed. And in a political system where anything that looks like it can be criticized as soft on crime and a soundbite is very hard to achieve. You know, it's just a, it's a political reality. So it's, it's difficult. But my years as a prosecutor really oriented me in a way that I think has influenced my view about sentencing generally in the last 28 years. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for, for joining me. You bet. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.